hello, and welcome back to DFT's Dungeon. My name is Daniel Terry, and you are listening to episode three of season three of this podcast. And when I talk about some of these old records on the show, I guess a part of me is trying to capture the best snapshot of what my life was really like at the time that I heard it. And there's times where I actually forget about the fact that, you know, I also released an album in the mid 2000s. And honestly, that is kind of a better snapshot of what my life was like whenever I recorded it 17 years ago. So if you'll indulge me, I'm gonna give the story of this album and what it meant to me to have that experience during that season of my life. But before we do that, let's do the normal podcast stuff. If you guys like the podcast, please make sure that you're subscribed to it so that you don't miss any new episodes when they come out. Or, if you feel so inclined, please leave the podcast a review on your favorite podcasting app. Or, you can leave a review right on the Facebook page. If you like the podcast, I want to know about it. You guys can follow the podcast on Twix, Threads, Instagram, and Facebook. But if you don't want to be bothered with all that shit, just send me an email at dftdungeon at gmail.com. Even if I don't respond right away, I do read all of my emails that you guys send me. And if you guys want to support the show financially, I do have a Patreon that's also linked in the show notes of this episode. But with all of that attention seeking out of the way, let's get into 2006's The Thoughtless Existence by End of Destiny. funny because I've gone back and forth so many times on whether or not I was going to do an episode about an album that I made. And on one hand, it seems incredibly self-centered. But on the other hand, I think it's a fun story to tell. And to be perfectly honest, my band was never really well known in the music scene. So it's not like anybody's ever going to interview me about this album in the future. So I thought, why not? But if you have no idea what I'm talking about, End of Destiny was a Christian hardcore or metalcore band, depending on who you ask, from St. Louis, Missouri, who was active between 2005 and 2007. But it's really hard to talk about End of Destiny without first talking about an even more obscure band called Jelly Donut. Like I was talking about in last week's Mortification episode, I used to belong to this Christian youth group called Student Venture. And it was at Student Venture where I met two guys named Will and Buddy, who sort of took me under their wing and taught me all about Christian heavy music. And pretty quickly after we all started hanging out, they told me that they were in a Christian rock band called Jelly Donut. But that band hadn't really done much in a long time. Which is funny to think about, because back then a long time could have been anywhere from two weeks to three months. 
In the summer after my freshman year, I attended a church camp with Will and Buddy, and at some point during the week, Will started asking me if I was any good at singing. And, like, I obviously knew what he was hinting at, but I kind of pretended like I didn't. Because, you know, I wanted him to ask me. I wanted to be I wanted to be courted, right? The problem was, though, is that I could not sing well. But I also really wanted to be in Will's band. So I said, yeah, man, I can sing, but it's more like nasally and like more pop punk. But what I really meant was I was super nasally and out of key, and I couldn't hold a note if it was made out of duct tape and super glue. But this actually didn't dissuade Will at all. He was like, well, uh, we can be a Christian pop punk band then. And I was like, okay. So Jelly Donut was a thing, but the band was really Will on bass and Buddy on guitar. And I remember Buddy had this like really sick, clear, like transparent green guitar, which I think was a BC Rich Mockingbird. But honestly, I really don't know anything about guitars. I think out of the three of us, Will was the only one who could actually play music. Buddy and I wanted to really badly, though. We ended up having a few really rough practices, and we tried writing some songs, but eventually I had to kind of step in and say, you know, my buddy Joe plays guitar really good, so we should ask him to be in the band. So once Joe was in the band, the musical direction shifted to more of a hard rock or new metal type of sound. So just like imagine something like Chevelle, but with really bad singing, and you've got it. And even to this day, I've never had much to offer musically, really, to any band that I've been in. And this iteration of the band was able to write three or four songs. And then Buddy and Will randomly went to some religious youth event. I think it was a concert. I think it was a band called Zealous that they went and saw. And at that show was a guy named Ryan, who was a drummer and was also into hard rock. And it turns out Ryan used to be in a band called Unseen that was apparently broken up. And Ryan was very much looking to be in a band again. And it was also really advantageous that he lived about 40 minutes south of us, and he had a pretty decent space for us to practice in. And man, practice we did. We practiced about two days a week for a couple of months over the summer, and we'd written about six songs total, which we got to play a couple of at our first show. We were opening for this southern rock band called Big Fat Jam at our local Baptist church. And for most of our friends and family, this was their first time hearing what this Jelly Donut band sounded like. And I'm not sure people were expecting us to sound like we did. A 
funny story our drummer told me one time was that at that same concert, his sister actually started crying when she heard what the band sounded like. And uh, I don't think that it was like the good kind of crying. But we thought we were metal in the same sense that people think that bands like Chevelle and Audio Slave are metal. So clearly we were hard rock. And I remember we were supposed to only play one song to open up that show, but we were actually allowed to play two songs. And we played our hearts out. And even though in retrospect my singing was, what's a good way to put this, really bad, I enjoyed myself and I wanted to make more music. I was stoked. And eventually we met up with our bass player, soon to be brother-in-law, who had a bunch of recording gear. And he helped us record our creatively named Jelly Donut, the self-titled demo. We recorded all three of those songs in a pregnancy help center. It ends tonight. And that iteration of Jelly Donut played a couple of more shows, including a concert that was at our high school that was called The Bash. And it was at The Bash that Will decided that he was going to propose to his then-girlfriend, both of which are still happily married to this very day. And we also played at a Christian coffee house in Festus, Missouri called The Cave, where we opened up for the Christian rappers, the Ill Harmonics. And we sold like a bunch of demos at that show. It's kind of wild. And also at that show at The Cave, they had a they had cable and they were showing music videos from Christian bands. And that was the very first time I ever saw the video for Norma Jean's Face to Face. And uh, I thought it was, like, the coolest thing that I had ever seen. But shortly after that, Will decided to leave the band. And pretty quickly after Will left, Buddy also left, which left the band as me and Joe and Ryan as the only members. So, like, cue the whole, oh, my God, this band has no original members alarm. There is not much left of. And one thing that had been on my mind at the time was that I was starting to get into much heavier music than we were playing. And during the search for a new bass player and guitarist, I remember going to Joe's house and showing him some bands like Zayo and Norma Jean and Beloved and saying that I wanted to make music that was like that with mostly screaming vocals. I was just kind of done with the whole new metal thing and I wanted to transition the band into like more of a hardcore band. And Joe and Ryan didn't seem totally into it, but they did their best to try to accommodate me because I was just like really, really excited about it, I guess. And eventually we found a bass player named Dom and we opted to just stick with one guitarist for the time being. And then we actually never ended up getting a second guitarist again after that. We wrote three or four more like hardcore styled songs and we returned to our high school the following year to play The Bash Strikes Back. Fire, I'm a 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 I'm a
and we were actually a pretty big hit because this was like 2002, 2003, and metalcore and hardcore were just starting to get noticed by a larger audience. And I remember it was the first time I started feeling like I was hitting my stride doing the kind of music that I loved. Because before that, the entire time I was in the band, I had to endure hearing all of my bandmates' parents talk about how great their kids were at their instruments and what a piece of shit I was at singing. Which was frustrating because I didn't want to sing anyway. I was an angsty teenager who listened to death metal. All I wanted to do was scream into a microphone. And there were actually plans for us to do another EP, and we were going to call it Incompletion. And we started working on it, uh, but the band ended up breaking up pretty quickly before the recording could actually be finished. I think we still have like instrumental versions of some of those songs. And I think a lot of this was due to the fact that I wanted to keep pushing the band to go heavier and heavier. And my bandmates wanted to play music that was more like their influences, which included more like hard rock and alternative bands that had predominantly sung vocals. And I was just kind of moving light speed in the opposite direction. And this escalated to the point where the whole band, besides me, were playing cover tunes and gigs in their spare time. This was just never really gonna work out. After the band had broken up, I dedicated most of my time and energy to this Christian underground metal magazine that I was making, which included a weekly podcast and a monthly issue full of like CD reviews and interviews that I did. It was like a lot of email interviews. I even did interviews over AOL Instant Messenger, which is kind of wild now that I think about it. And as much as this scratched my creative itch, I still found myself wanting to play music again. Even though things weren't perfect with Jelly Donut, I still enjoyed writing songs and playing them in front of people. So a little over a year later, I went on Craigslist's Musicians Wanted ads and I wanted to see if there was like a local hardcore band that needed a singer. And I stumbled upon an ad for a self-described emo core band looking for a lead singer called Least of All Saints. And this wasn't exactly what I was looking for because the term emo core to me at the time meant like I was going to have to do a bunch of singing as well as screaming. But the fact that they even used the word core gave me a little bit of hope. And it took a few days to get a response, but whenever I finally did, it was from this guy named Patrick who informed me that the band had actually broken up already. <laughs> uh, and the ad, I guess, was just still up there from a long time ago. But he was still interested in doing music of some kind, so we agreed to meet up at his church after this youth event. And we decided to just talk it over. And so when I got there, I met Patrick and his friend Tyler. And it turned out Tyler used to be the singer of Least of All Saints. And Patrick was the main guitarist and songwriter. And he also did a little bit of the singing himself. And I told Patrick that I was looking to play hardcore music with mostly screamed vocals. But like with big doses of like melody in the music itself. Honestly, I don't know why I didn't just say melodic hardcore band. That probably would have been a lot quicker. I showed them some like Hope's Fall and Beloved songs and said that I was looking to do something in that vein. 
And Tyler decided that he didn't want to sing in the band, but instead he wanted to learn how to play keyboards because I guess he was like really into horse the band at the time. And he absolutely was like, nah, keyboards have to be in the new band. So me and Patrick and Tyler sat down over the course of a few days and we wrote this song called The Day the World Fell Down. And we all vibed really hard on the song, and it was exactly what I was looking for. My screaming had gotten considerably better since I was in Jelly Donut, and we all felt really good about how everything sounded. But we still needed a drummer and a bass player, and it just so happened that Joe had started playing drums about two months before all of this, so in an act of history repeating itself, I invited Joe to join the band on drums. And as far as bass players go, I knew that back in Jelly Donut, Buddy had played guitar, and I thought, well, if he knows how to play guitar, he could easily pick up the bass. And Buddy was going through like a really tough season in his life at that time because Buddy was a little bit older than the rest of us and he had recently moved out on his own and he was sharing an apartment with some of his friends from church. And this was also at the time that Buddy and I were doing a midnight radio show at Lindenwood University. So I feel like he and I were kind of together almost every day during that time. So it wasn't very long before I asked him if he'd want to join this new band that I was forming. And the very next day, he went out and he bought a bass and a cabinet. And before I knew it, I was standing on a mini stage in the kids' chapel at Southside Assemblies of God playing the day the world fell down with a full band. And it was such a defining moment for me. Because after years and years of fighting against friends and families' uninformed opinions about what they thought music was, here I was playing exactly the kind of music that I had always wanted to play. And I smiled at myself thinking, yep, this is going to work. And after debating band names for several weeks, I made an executive decision that the band would be called Spear of Destiny, which was the name of a computer game that I loved. It's the sequel to Wolfenstein. But then I got a little bit scared because I thought that the name Spear of Destiny would be copyrighted by id Software. So we named the band End of Destiny, which was the name of a free, like, downloadable mod for Spear of Destiny. And looking back on it, I, I, I like End of Destiny more, so. And it seems like it took off right after that. Like, we played our first show at the same church in the gym on St. Patrick's Day. And there was this incredible band from Decatur, Illinois, who headlined the show called Lorianne. And I still have their CD, and I promise you I will do an episode on it in the future. Yeah, I 
And then everything just sort of started happening really, really fast. Our second show ever was at Pops in East St. Louis, which is kind of insane because that's kind of a bigger venue. But that was also back in the MySpace days, and there were promoters all over MySpace that would message you trying to book your band. And one of the promoters apparently thought that Buddy was super cute because, I mean, you know, he is. Dude's cute as hell. So she ended up booking us at some really cool St. Louis venues, like, for a long time. And when we weren't playing shows, we were writing songs like crazy. And eventually, once we had three good, solid songs down, we went down to Joe's dad's house and we recorded the We the Walking Dead Brought Back to Life demo. Hey, I mean, praying's for church, huh? Come on. I haven't seen you in church lately. <laughs> well... Not much sense in my going to church. as soon as Joe was done putting the finishing touches on the record, we threw the day the world fell down up on MySpace and just sat there refreshing that page over and over and over again just to see how many streams it was going to get. And since Buddy and I worked at the radio station, we started playing End of Destiny songs on the show and not even telling people that we were in the band at all. In addition to that, I was full-time promoting the band online and getting myself banned from all these message boards because, you know... Probably shouldn't just come into a message board and spam your band. Schwacked. And then we went to Kinko's and we printed like 200 copies of the cover artwork that Patrick had drawn for the demo. And then we had my girlfriend cut them all up for us. And we spent like an entire day putting stickers onto the CDRs and putting the inserts in jewel cases. Because it was really important to me at the time that the demos looked as professional as humanly possible. So that means they had to be on like shiny paper and complete with like full credits and lyrics, just like a real release. And I even put the name of my magazine on the back of it as if it was a record label, Centurion Outpost Records. And we sent the demo out to magazines for potential reviews as well as we sent the song to like Christian music internet radio stations because they were a thing back then, just to see if they'd actually pick up any of the songs and play them. And I remember one time Tyler submitted our song to a magazine that pitted the day the world fell down against a song called Expletive Deleted, Down with the Antichrist by the band Postmortem. And we were shocked because people actually voted for us and we ended up winning the contest. And I don't think that there was actually a prize, but we all felt pretty good about it anyway. 
and people were actually taking notice of our band. And ironically, we ended up playing a festival called Anvil Metal Festival in Kentucky with the band Postmortem two years later. Nobody talked about the contest. And eventually the online promotion and the buzz that we had created seemed to pay off because this guy named James Mattern reached out to me on a Christian heavy music message board called Firestream asking me all these questions about the band. And he told me he owned a record label called Open Grave Records, and he was interested in signing the band, which obviously was exactly what we wanted our promotion campaign to accomplish. And I was so overjoyed telling the guys that instead of us just sitting down and looking into the label or how popular it was or you know, weighing the pros and cons of being on the label. Instead, all we could think about were professionally pressed CDs with full liner notes with our band's name on it. So stupidly, we accepted and we signed the contract. It's a trap. There was only one problem. At the time, we'd only written about five songs and James wanted us to record a full length album for an already set release date that was only four months away. He told us that he set the release date in stone so that he could properly promote it leading up to the release. So we ended up taking a break from playing shows so that we could focus on getting the album written and, you know, still have time to record it. And it wasn't very long before we had about eight songs finished, including the songs that we had already been playing at our shows. And we demoed all of them out in our practice space and also in Joe's studio. And honestly, I still like listening to those demos because everything seemed so fresh back then. And for the first time, I felt like I was writing lyrics that actually meant something to me personally. Because when I was in Jelly Donut, sometimes the lyrics were written more by committee. Like I would come up with an idea and I'd show it to the other guys and then they would sort of like check it to make sure it was like biblically sound or, or something. And a lot of those lyrics ended up just being standard Christian themes that had kind of been done to death by other bands. So I wanted to make sure that these songs had a little bit more meat on them. So the song An Illness to Call Your Own was about one-uppers, like the kind of people who just sort of wait for you to stop talking so that they can talk. Generation. And the song Muffled was about other Christian bands that I felt were ashamed to talk about God and just used Christianity as a descriptor so that they would have an instant fan base. New Hampshire was based around stories that my dad had told me about my grandfather and how he mistreated his whole family. Yeah. 
And the Thawist existence was about people who abandoned their faith over time and never made a difference in their life. And this song was personal to me at the time because it felt like that's what was happening to me and my friends. And The Day the World Fell Down was about feeling guilty for not being there for my friends when they needed me the most. Luxury Suicide was a song that was like an anti-smoking song, and it was about a family member who had died after decades of just constant chain smoking. Cast Me Out was about feeling like I wasn't a good enough Christian and that I would sideline my faith every chance that I was given. Which is interesting because as much as I love the day the world fell down, Cast Me Out by far ended up being our biggest song. It was the one that got played on Christian radio stations, got played on Christian internet radio. Um, it just got pushed really, really, really hard. It was the most streamed song on MySpace. And uh, Cast Me Out is probably the most... If, if you've never heard of End of Destiny, you may have heard Cast Me Out at some point Son of Deception was about internal conflicts that I had sort of had with other members of the band and how ultimately I felt like it was just, you know, the devil trying to keep the band from reaching people for God. And it might sound silly now, but at the time that was something that I was really worried about. And I really believed that we were on a mission to reach people for God. And it was really, really important to me. Return to Thought in a Thank You Letter was something that we kind of just came up with when we were in the studio recording the album because we only had eight songs and an intro track written and we wanted a full 10 song album so for the spoken word part of the song i ended up just taking a bunch of jelly donut lyrics and then i just spoke them plainly into the microphone and then we mixed them all together so that it sounded like a crowd of people was were talking uh, which is a fun kind of tip of the hat to the old band and that song was also the first time that I had attempted clean singing on a recording since the Jelly Donut days. But in retrospect, I kind of wish that I had tried it at a time when my voice wasn't so shot. And all in all, I was pretty proud of the songs that we wrote and performed at our shows. To my selfish desires, with the seed in my words. And Father, tonight I ask that you purge me and make me a worthy vessel. Something to call your own. done james told us that he'd booked us at this studio that was located near him and not us it was in whitehall pennsylvania and he said that he was willing to split the album recording cost of like a thousand dollars with us 
But I didn't really like this, and I told James that I didn't think it was worth it for us to pack up the whole band and drive 18 hours just to have to pay $500 to record in a guy's house studio. Because Joe already had a house studio where we recorded the demo, but James insisted that it needed to sound better than our demo, which I did agree with. And in the end, though, he told us that he would just cover all of the costs and all we needed to do was show up on the right dates and record the record. So eventually I agreed. And I remember being super stoked because the studio that we were going to was called Istari Studio. And it was run by a guy named Travis Turner who played drums in a technical death metal band called Alathian, who I was a huge fan of. And I thought it was going to be really cool just to meet the guy in general and even cooler to find out that he was going to actually be helping with our album. So in the months leading up to the recording dates, Tyler ended up leaving the band and I ended up having my high school friend Mike step into the keyboard role just to keep the lineup as complete as possible. We didn't have a tour van. And we'd only played out of town once or twice at that point, so we ended up actually having to take two cars to Pennsylvania. Buddy drove his car, which was loaded up with most of the equipment, and he also took Joe and Patrick in his car, and then I had to borrow my brother's Ford Taurus, and Mike rode with me. And man, the trip was long, because it was my brother's car, and he didn't want anybody else driving it besides me, which meant that I had to stay awake and driving for the entire 18-hour trip. So you'd think that I would have planned better, but for some reason I decided that we were going to leave after we'd all gotten off work on a Friday. So I got off work and we loaded up and we drove overnight and most of the next day until we arrived super tired and smelly in Whitehall, PA. And this was the early days of bands doing like video content because like YouTube was only like a year old at that point. But we decided we were going to record video. So we pulled out our little razor phones that could do like really primitive video. And we recorded all these clips the whole time that we were in the studio recording and on the trip up there and the trip back. And then every night before we went to bed, Joe would cut all the clips together and we released them on our MySpace page as studio blogs. Those are actually still up on YouTube, on Joe's YouTube channel. I'll link them in the show notes of this episode if anybody wants to watch them. The funny part is, is that the story almost ends there because almost as soon as we got there, James walks up to me and asks me if I have $500 because we totally agreed on it, man. And then I had to remind him rather forcefully that we had not agreed to that <laughs> and that if he wasn't going to keep his word, then we were going to pack up all of our shit and go home. But he eventually backed down and said that it was fine, so we went ahead with it. And that night we got to meet Travis and Sean, who were the ones that were going to be recording our record with us. And I don't remember a whole lot about that night because I'd been awake for well over 24 hours at that point, and I went to sleep pretty quick. And we got into the studio the next morning to do drums, which ended up taking longer than we expected them to. And honestly, that's always been the case with recording anything. You always think that you're going to walk in there and nail it in one shot, but there's always something that ends up happening that slows you down. And we ran into all of them. And we only had a week to record the album, and it was once we got there that it kind of started to sink in for me that we were a band for less than a year. And we weren't as tight as I thought that we were. And we ended up just having to do the best that we could in the limited amount of time that we had. The drums and bass and guitar ate up pretty much the whole week. 
And I think a lot of it was just because we were all really tired from the drive and we didn't really have a whole lot of time to recover before we started recording. It also didn't help that like James would keep us up like pretty late at night. Like one night he took us out into a graveyard that was right next to a cornfield with a photographer so that we could take band photos that he could use for like promo stuff. Impressively though, Mike was able to knock out most of his keyboards in like two hours for the album. But that basically left me with the last day having to record all of the vocals for the record. And that so that's like one nine-hour session of just doing screaming vocals. And I like doing screaming vocals. I, I love doing them. But, you know, maybe only at like 30 minutes or an hour at a time, right? Screaming the songs over and over and over again was one of the most exhausting experiences of my life. Even after the vocals were done, I still wasn't even finished because our songs had a lot of like spoken word segments in them. And after screaming for all that time, I just couldn't do it. Like my voice was shot. And so we decided that even though we were leaving the next day, that we were going to, we would come into the studio early for a couple of hours the next morning so that I could do those speaking parts. And once that was done, we packed all of our stuff up and we drove back to St. Louis. And I think even at that time, we were all feeling pretty good about everything. And after we got home, the only thing we had to do for the album was take some promo pictures for like the album booklet. And I had this whole concept of the thoughtless existence being a person sitting in a dark room with only the light of a TV screen or a computer screen lighting up their face. And I was actually horrified when I discovered that they had just used a close-up shot of my face as the actual album cover. Believe me, that was never my intention for what the cover of the album was supposed to be, but once you hand it off to a graphic designer, they ultimately end up deciding what your album cover looks like. But I gotta say, even looking at it now, it's still one of the weirdest album covers in my CD collection. Speaking of weird, and I couldn't think of a good place to talk about this in the overall story, but man, James Mattern and Open Grave Records were super, super sketch. Like, first, it was super strange to me that he wanted to put out a Christian hardcore record because the other bands on the label were, like, super satanic and anti-Christian. The other bands were called stuff like Necrodemon, Downlord, and Demon Dog Sperm. Demon Dog Sperm. And during the week of recording, we actually stayed at James's house, which was a loft on top of this like used car business, because like of course he is in close proximity to a used car salesman. And one of the days that me and Mike weren't needed in the studio, and while James was at work, we decided we were going to go through all of James's DVDs. And I really wish that we hadn't, because his DVD collection consisted mostly of like 
terrifying gore-themed pornography. And at night, James would keep us up late, and he would show us all kinds of, like, homophobic and racist grindcore albums that he had. And it was just really, really weird. Like, we were, like, terrified after a while because we just never knew what he was going to say or, or do or show us. And, I mean, generally, he was really, really nice, but all of the time that we spent with him was super awkward. Uh, and I could do a whole other podcast on this dude, but here's just some fun stuff about James that we didn't really know at the time. So, firstly, his whole record label business was a sham. He had no business license, like just straight up not a real business. And it's funny because James told me that he was like really into Christian metal back in the day. And so he knew a lot of stuff about the same bands that I also liked. And one night, really late, we're sitting there at his kitchen table, and he tells me straight up that his business before the record label was him just selling porn on the internet, which to a young Christian kid fresh out of high school, that was like somebody admitting to being a serial killer. (laughs) It's funny because after signing us, he started getting really into Christian metal, and he started a sub-label called sullen records that dealt mostly with like underground christian black and death metal bands and he even started an online cd shop for christian metal called divine metal distro and then one day a few years later he calls me to tell me that he's relocating the label from pennsylvania to california and it was a little bit after this that james just straight up vanished from the internet and he was apparently like still collecting money from his online shops and not actually sending people the CDs that they'd ordered. And I remember a lot of people were pissed off and he left a whole bunch of people hanging. But hilariously, this story isn't actually over. So one day I catch wind that he has reappeared online under the persona of Death Valley Jim. And essentially what he was doing was giving people tours of Death Valley And he even wrote a couple of books about, like, the trails in Death Valley. I think you can still buy them on Amazon. I think they're still there. But what makes this even funnier is, if you haven't guessed it already at this point, this was also another total sham business. And the tours that he was giving people around Death Valley were actually, like, totally illegal. To the point where he was eventually sued and banned from Death Valley altogether. Uh, And then to make matters worse, I found out later that he had been arrested a few years before we had even met him for indecent exposure to a minor. The dude was like everything that my parents were afraid of him being whenever I told them that he was going to sign my band and that we were going to go to another state and actually stay with him for a week. Some icing on the cake, years later, Travis told me that James didn't actually pay them all of the money for the recording that he promised that he would, which is kind of like a big yikes. Like, I kind of felt bad about that, but I honestly had no idea until, like, 2022. So I know that was kind of a long side road, and this is already, like, a long episode. So uh, let's get back into the main story here. Nobody ever went 
We got home and started playing shows pretty much right away because, in my words at the time, we've got a record to support. But unfortunately, everything wasn't really sugar and rainbows because we were definitely really high on starting a band really quickly and writing a record and see actually seeing our record in music stores and stuff. But the reality was that there were problems with the record. And I promised I wouldn't spend this whole podcast pointing out the flaws, so I'm not going to get into anything specific. But let's just say that a combination of limited time and our own inexperience as a band produced a record that wasn't quite as good as it could have been. And I remember Patrick coming to me shortly after and saying that he didn't really have much time anymore to dedicate to the band and that he was unhappy with the way the record turned out. And it was a huge bummer because I largely felt the same way about the quality of the record, but I just didn't want the dream to die. And so I adopted this kind of like, well, we'll just do better next time mentality. And the show just had to go on. And it went on in the form of us finding a replacement guitarist named Spencer, who was dating my girlfriend's sister at the time. And pretty much right after Spencer joined, Buddy played one final show with the band at the Creepy Crawl and then decided to step out to focus on a new job and a new romantic relationship. And with Buddy gone, I remember kind of having this fear that everything was starting to fall apart. But we still had shows booked, and we still had a record, so it didn't seem feasible to me to just quit after putting in all that time and work. And you'll discover from listening to this podcast that I often fall victim to the sunk cost fallacy, But in order to keep the train moving, I once again dipped into the Jelly Donut pool, and I asked Ryan, who had played drums for Jelly Donut, to step in and take up the bass role in End of Destiny. After that, we played a few more shows at the Red Sea on the Del Mar Loop. One of them was opening for Bloodline Calligraphy. And we even got invited to play at Anvil Metal Festival in Kentucky. And sometime after the festival, James called me and said that he had booked us a slot at the Sanctuary Tent at Cornerstone Festival that year. And we were, like, through the roof. Uh, But I think that even at the time, as excited as we were, The cracks were starting to show. We were tired. We were playing shows. It didn't seem like the audiences were getting that much bigger. You know, we we sold albums. We sold shirts and stuff. But it just never really seemed to be going in any kind of real direction. But due to my misgivings about how the album had turned out, I kind of wanted to start writing a new album as soon as possible because I wanted to, like rectify this so i had this like lofty concept album planned out and i wanted to call the album i cyclops you know like the word i e y e you guys get it right you guys you you guys get it but we wrote one song with spencer and it was pretty obvious after that 
that the next album, if we had recorded it with Spencer, was not even going to sound like the same band. Spencer was more into like traditional metal and not as much into like melodic hardcore as Patrick was. But I still totally like the song. I think it's rad. But I didn't think that it would work for End of Destiny. But after a while, Spencer ended up leaving the band, and I was pretty much about to call it quits at that point. But Patrick randomly calls me one day and says he misses playing with the band. And I remember being like super, super stoked because we would have like a full lineup for Cornerstone Festival. And when we finally got around to writing the next album, we would actually have a primary songwriter back and we'd have that melodic sound back. We went to Cornerstone. We played to a pretty small audience. The weird thing about that show is that we were sandwiched between a couple of black metal bands, which were uh, Frost Harder and Crimson Moonlight. So it's like then you had us like between those two bands. It was like really, really, really strange. But it was a it was a really cool show. I just had no idea at the time that it was going to be the last show that we ever played as a band. Looking back on it, it, it was kind of special because Buddy and Tyler were both there. Uh, I remember Buddy jumping up on one of the mics and screaming along to the end of an illness to call your own. And so I don't regret that show at all. I remember us like driving home and like actually feeling really good about everything. But for some reason, like those problems that we had before we played at Cornerstone were still there when we got back. And that was just kind of it. Like we got home, we put all of our stuff away. We had like a couple of band meetings and band practices after that, and we tried writing some songs, but the magic just didn't seem to be there. We were super tired. We didn't have anything new to bring to the table, so we decided to take a break for a while. And a while turned into months. Months turned into years, and the band was eventually just gone. There was one blip on the radar in 2008, 2009, sometime around there where Patrick had returned and wanted to do the band again. And we sat down and we demoed a brand new End of Destiny song called The Classic, which to this day is actually still my favorite End of Destiny song. We recorded that song in Joe's living room and uh, I did all the vocals in like one take and then we did like a small overdub at the end 
And it was just really, 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 really cool. And we were excited and we're like, we're going to write a new album and their band's back and it's all going to be okay. And then we just didn't do anything again after that. And uh, that was it. That that was the the story of End of Destiny, you know. And it, 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 it's bittersweet sometimes to, to think about. But at the end of the day... I've gone back and forth with a lot of the old band members and people that were fans of the band at the time, and they always ask me if I regret it. And the answer is absolutely not, because even though there are things about the record that I don't necessarily enjoy listening to, it's only because I know what those songs were going to be in my head before they were what they are on the record. So uh, with an open mind, you can still absolutely stream The Thoughtless Existence on Spotify or whatever your favorite, you know, music streaming app is. You can, you can listen to it and judge for yourself. But at the end of the day, a band isn't a record. And a band isn't just a show. And it's not some separate entity that exists on its own in the absence of everything else. It's really the guys that are willing to show up and create those memories together. So I'm really happy that all of these years later I still have these memories to come back to. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of DFT's Dungeon. It's a long one, so I'm going to be kind of brief. The only thing I want to say is check out the Discord server for DFT's Dungeon. There will be a link in the show notes if you want to chat with me or chat with any of the other listeners to the show. We are on Discord doing stuff all the time, and uh, I hope to see you guys on there soon. But if I don't, that's okay too, because I will see you again here next week.